Well, it, it's that time again. It's that show. And for those of you, <laughs> those of you new to it, this is the show where I make Abby cry. <laughs> you don't have to know Abby, but you should um, at, at uh, Cox Media Group in Atlanta. Uh, it's the show where I try not to. Um, let, let me explain to you. We, we've had the Trump indictment this week. We've got uh, Finland joining NATO. We've got uh, the Ukraine war. We've got China being China. We've got all the problems in Washington. And this is the show where I kind of hit pause on that so you can kind of know me and at least know where I come from. Uh, but more important than that, uh, this actually in a survey of, of Harvard University professors uh, of historians in the United States, and then there were similar ones at Oxford and Cambridge just in the last decade or so, of asking historians what is the most important event in human history uh, this is the anniversary of what secular historians at, at Ivy League and prestigious global academic institutions say is the most important or one of the most important. Most surveys listed as number one, but it's always in the top five, and that is uh, the death of some random dude in Jerusalem in 33 AD or thereabouts. Uh, probably would not be a spectacular uh, celebration or, or event in human history, but for what uh, his followers say happened uh, a couple days later. And we'll get to that. But there's another reason I do this too, uh, because it's it's relevant to my story and who I am and what I do and how I do it. Uh, and so this is the day for me to remind you that uh, the world looks like a dumpster fire. You are stressed out. You might be freaked out. You might be angry. You might be frustrated. And, and this is an appropriate day each year for me to tell you, I get it. I had to look my wife in the eye and tell her she was going to die. I understand. I understand. I am a man who had to tell his wife she had six months to live. And so... I want to begin here now with this, particularly I'm mindful of the new stations I've had since last Good Friday, and I just, will you just pause with me these couple of hours here, these three hours, and let me tell you, some of you have faced tragedy and hardship. We are a, just over a week removed from a shooting at a Christian school in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, later in the program, my buddy Jason Dees is going to join me, who's friends with that family, longtime friends with the family. Jason is the pastor of a church called Christ's Covenant in Atlanta, Georgia. But let me start with me. My oldest is now 17. I, how do I have a kid that old? I don't know. But a year after she was born, my wife had a weird health issue. They found stuff in her lungs and my wife was diagnosed with a very rare aggressive form of cancer that had spread through her body, had settled in her lungs, the last place for it to go. And she had about six months at most to live. And it was a terrible day. There was terrible, terrible storm. I'm shortening the story because I don't actually want to cry with all of you. But it was a, it was an awful storm. There was a terrible wreck. And the doctor who had performed the lung biopsy told me they had taken it to pathology. Pathology had 
diagnosed it, it. I can't even remember the cancer, but she had a blood clot in her jugular vein. It, it, it led to them uh, die, looking at some spots in her lungs they had found when they were actually looking for a gallbladder issue, and they saw the spots in her lungs. They thought she was having a pulmonary embolism at one point. It was, it was a mess. It got to this point. It was a week before Christmas, and I had a one-year-old. A week before Christmas with my one-year-old in daycare, I had to look my wife in the eyes and tell her she had a death sentence. There was no cure. There was nothing they could do. The oncologist had recommended no treatment. I was that guy. The doctors, because of this terrible wreck, had to go help in the ER. And I volunteered. I was in this little room. My father-in-law, I always, I leave them out of the story because I don't want to drag them into this, but my father-in-law last year got on to me for saying, you know, we were there too. Yet my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, they were in the room where the doctor told us. And then they went out to be with family and I walked back to the recovery room to tell my wife she was going to die. And then I had to run out to daycare to get my kid because it was almost closing time. And I had to be get my kid, got out of this rainstorm, told my wife she's going to die, rushed to daycare, got my child, took my child home. By the time I got home, I was so emotionally exhausted and spent, I literally sat in the mud, got my kid out of the car, sank into the mud, leaned up against the rear passenger side tire, and just started crying. And I'll never forget my daughter, Evelyn, patting me on the face. One years old. She had no idea what was happening. I had tried to, to keep a brave face on when I was at daycare. Got her and got her home and couldn't do it after that. It was raining and I was crying. I was a snotty, muddy, wet mess with this one-year-old who I had to take care of. And that night I was able to clean up. Family came. I went back to the hospital. My wife and I had the conversations you never want to have, the conversations of, where do I live? Do I get remarried? How do we raise our child? My wife told me she thought that I was like a catapult, that I threw good ideas and good people into the arena, to the conversation, to introduce to people, and that I should keep doing something like that. I was a writer at Red State at the time. That was a very difficult night. They misdiagnosed her. Misdiagnosed her. She did not have that rare cancer. But, you know, I, I, I actually am a believer. I believe in God. I believe there are little things in life that come along the way. And if you have that relationship with him, you're like, this has got to be a God thing. It's it's not luck. It's not, it's not just happenstance or coincidence. There are no coincidences. It's providential in some way. Had my wife not been misdiagnosed... Ten years later, I was being wheeled into a cardiac ICU unit. I was given 24 hours to live. I had been traveling a lot during the 2016 campaign. Uh, I had gotten blood clots, didn't realize it, and they had shattered pieces coming apart and going into my lungs. My lungs had slowly filled up with blood clots. My oxygen level was around 80% at the time. I could barely breathe. I just thought it was allergies or I had started CrossFit and figured I was killing myself at CrossFit. No, it was this. I was dying 24 hours to live, call your family. My wife was calling me constantly. They're trying to wheel me in. And she had a call from the Mayo Clinic where they had, those years before, sent the biopsy. 
to be sure it wasn't what they thought it was. And the by the Mayo Clinic had said it wasn't. And 10 years later, the Mayo Clinic was calling saying, you might actually have this rare form of cancer. So on the day I was given 24 hours to live, my wife was told she had an incurable form of lung cancer. I am still alive, as is my wife. She has an incurable form of lung cancer. We hope maybe one day there will be a cure. She takes a pill every day that keeps her tumors from growing. The pill is supposed to last for two years. She's been on it for six, and it's still working. And the folks at the Mayo Clinic told her they would love to be her doctor, but the guy who really was the the expert on the cancer was up the road from us in Atlanta at Emory University, and he is now her doctor. I told this story as all this was happening one time. And a while later, a guy came to me to do a book signing. And he said, I just want you to know, I heard your story. I had been diagnosed with cancer and was going to go home and propose to my girlfriend and tell her I wanted her to fight cancer with me. And before I could say anything, she stopped me and said she had something to tell me. And she told me that she was actually pregnant. The father was my best friend and they were getting married and then wanted to know what I wanted to tell her. I left, I got in my car, realized my gun was in my console and it was loaded, but I turned on the car and you were on WSB radio telling this story and I just thought, damn, my life's not so bad and I didn't kill myself. (laughs) Just God has a sense of humor, folks. God has a sense of humor. So every year on Good Friday, The reason I do this is because I told God that I would do what I could to thank him and to tell this story that I might be an encouragement to other people, even when I don't want to encourage other people and need the encouragement myself. And so on Good Friday, I do this. I started in radio January 11th of 2011. It's the only company I ever worked for where I didn't have Good Friday off as a holiday. And I said I was going to do this program on Good Friday. And I did it, and they told me never, ever, ever, ever do anything like that again. And so many people called and asked for a copy of the show. Now I do a Christmas one as well. (laughs) Have when I was in local radio. And I just decided when I got into national radio, I was going to keep doing it. And everybody tells me, no, you can't. You can't talk about this topic. You can't devote a show to this topic. You're a political news talk show. You talk about the news and you talk about politics. Leave God out of it. I can't because he didn't leave me out of it. So here we are. Good Friday, the anniversary of the most important event in human history, according to scholars globally. It's worth focusing on that and the impact of that and how it has disrupted the whole world for 2000 years. I'm Eric Erickson. This is the Good Friday Show. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the nation. It's the Good Friday Show. Uh, And I'm doing something somewhat different. Uh, Normally, I might just wing it myself, uh, but I don't think that's that's fair and can get monotonous and boring. And I decided uh, a few years ago that I wanted to interview some people Uh, who experts in the field, you might say. And so some of you you probably heard of uh, the theologians, uh, Scott Sauls and Tim Keller. Uh, (laughs) 
I got to tell you, um, I'm really excited to get uh, Stephen Gadbury here. He is Father Stephen Gadbury. He's a Catholic priest. He is in the Diocese of Little Rock, works with uh, Word on Fire Ministries with Bishop Barron, and he was an Air Force vet, was in Iraq. He's a CrossFit athlete, a hunter, as he describes it, a, a hunter, an athlete, a cheap beer drinker, a cusser, and a Catholic priest, and all-around good guy. And people have asked if I would have a priest on the program because I tend to do Baptists, Presbyterians, the occasional Methodist. And I reached out to him. We follow each other on Instagram. I was like, man, would you come on? And he's like, absolutely, I'll do it. Um, we had to arrange it around his. Uh, he also works for the, the Catholic Diocese of a school, and he kind of is the, the hands-on guy there. They had a sewage backup, and he decided to take care of it himself. Um, God bless him. So I, I've got him as well. And then it's just you and me. And... I'm delighted some of you hang around for this, and I appreciate the kind feedback you get. If you're looking for raw politics today, this is not the show. The reason is I just think when you've got historians around the world who say uh, the execution of Jesus of Nazareth is the most important event in human history because of the ramifications from it, or some say it's in the top five with Alexander conquering the world and the Roman Empire and the rise of the shoguns in Japan, and, and you name it, um, it's a pretty monumental day. And it impacts the lives of most people on the planet in one way or another. There are 2.2 to 3 billion people on the planet who believe fundamentally that Jesus of Nazareth did not just die on a cross on Good Friday in AD 33 or thereabouts, but he rose again from the dead. Uh, there are eyewitnesses to his resurrection. N.T. Wright, a theologian from Great Britain, wrote a very deep, dense academic book on the theories of the resurrection for and against it, essentially. It's called The Resurrection of Jesus Christ, or of Jesus of Nazareth, and documents fairly well that this story would not have held up or sustained itself had something big not happened on Easter, on the very first Easter Sunday. Uh, I, as a matter of fact, believe that Jesus of Nazareth actually rose again from the dead. I do. A lot of very famous people in history, very smart people, not just us hicks and rubes of the Christian right, believe it. Uh, Isaac Newton was a believer. Uh, the guy who came up with the theory of the Big Bang was a Catholic Jesuit priest and physicist. And Albert Einstein at first dismissed the idea of the Big Bang because he thought that this was a Catholic priest trying to justify uh, let there be light in Genesis 1. There is evidence for it. And in fact, if you use the standards of history, you can't actually deny, whether you want to deny or not that this guy was the Son of God, you can't deny he wasn't real. Uh, he, he, there's more documented evidence of his being alive, written closer in time to when he would have been alive than the Emperor Nero, who we all accept as real, or Julius Caesar's Gallic campaign, which we accept as real. Them's just the facts. Inconvenient for a lot of people, but they're the facts nonetheless. I do want to dive into those today. But I, I, I hope, if nothing else, you'll find some encouragement here. Listen, I am very mindful that people 
really hate each other these days. I get a lot of hate mail from people, people who would purport to be on my side, but they don't like when I've criticized Trump or some attack me because I haven't criticized him enough or I've said this this prosecution is bunk. Uh, I, I get a lot of hate from a lot of people. A lot of people are more tuned into politics than they are these higher order things. Uh, heaven and hell, there are no bigger topics. And this is a great weekend to discuss heaven and hell. Whether you believe they are real or not, so many people do. It impacts the decisions of so many people. You might as well at least try to understand and walk a little bit and show some radical empathy for those who believe this because of how profoundly it affects so many people in the world, how profoundly it affects their actions, their beliefs, and sometimes how hypocritical people can also be because of it. It's worth, I think, considering and contemplating, and I hope you'll come along with me on the ride when we come back. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. It is the Good Friday show that I I make a point of doing this show every year. To the annoyance of some, I do recognize, just ask for a little grace to be able to do this once a year, uh, because... I really do believe this event happened, and 2.2 billion people are this weekend globally, minimum 2.2 billion people, going to celebrate the resurrection of a man named Jesus, who history tells us was the son of a carpenter from Nazareth, who was born in Bethlehem, who Christians believe is the Messiah. I believe he is. I believe he is still alive. I believe he will come again. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and in his son, Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, sitteth in the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and will return to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Catholic Church, the universal church, not the Roman Catholic Church, in my telling of it. I believe these things. I, I do. Uh, it, it's not just something that I grew up with, although it is. One of my very first memories is sitting on my grandmother's lap, but it is something that over time, having uh, gone to college and been challenged in my faith and become weak at one point in my faith, it became very firm. These little instances along the way that some people would say, uh, aren't real, aren't true, or coincidence. Uh, I believe it's a God thing. Y'all, I was supposed to be a lawyer. I fell into doing talk radio completely by accident. A local guy in, in radio got arrested in a crack house. I was a, a pundit on CNN. They asked if I wanted to do radio. I said, sure. Herman Cain was running for president. His boss knew it. I didn't. I was in Macon, Georgia, on a little, on a little cumulus talk radio station. The boss happened to be driving through Macon, Georgia on the way to Disney World, heard me, thought it was my show, knew Herman was running for president, and asked if I would take Herman's spot, thinking I was a radio guy. I was not. I was literally the guy who was filling in because the other guy was in jail and then lost his job. And now here I am in national radio syndication, guest hosted for Rush Limbaugh, got to be a dear friend of mine. Before I was in radio, I was a friend of Russia's. And these things just... I, I kind of feel like God's in charge and plops me down wherever he wants me. And 
Uh, There's more and more, I have more and more apprehension and anxiety about doing the show every year because of the number of people in charge of radio stations who don't like talk radio to begin with, don't particularly like conservative talk radio, and sure as hell don't like conservative Christian talk radio. Somebody who talks about his faith and sounds like me on the radio is anathema to a lot of people, and I could probably grow more stations if I stop, but I can't. Because I believe it's true, and this is the most important weekend in human history. Why do I believe it is true? Of all of the ancient texts we have, we have more copies of the Scripture than any other text out there. We have thousands of copies of the New Testament. Not only do we have thousands of copies of the New Testament, more than 4,900. We've got them in a couple of different uh, libraries. We've got them in the Alexandrian. We've got them in the uh, Byzantian codices or codicils of text. These are different books that have documented and compiled them, and it is remarkably similar. In fact, there is no text ancient text of scripture that disagrees in anything other than like typographical stylistic things. We don't have anything that contradicts each other. We have thousands of these documents. Some of them we have preserved within about 150 years of the resurrection. We don't have any other ancient document as well preserved as these scriptural documents of the New Testament and some of the Old Testament. We do not have them. They do not exist. Thousands of these exist. We have more copies of the New Testament letters than we do of anything documenting Nero, and we have them more closely to the life of Christ than we have anything related to Nero. Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, we know he wrote that. Nobody disputes he wrote that, but the closest copies we have are about 900 years after he originally wrote them. The ancient scholars did a good job of of transcribing. The scribes did a good job. We don't dispute those things. We dispute this thing, and we dispute this thing because of people like Carl Sagan say, if if you're going to make these claims, you're going to have extraordinary evidence for extraordinary claims. The extraordinary evidence is you can ask him himself if you believe sincerely he's real and he will answer you. But as to whether he died and something happened, I believe it's true. Look, we know from the documentary eyewitness accounts, he had a mother, he had a human father, he had a heavenly father, he had brothers and sisters, some believe first cousins, and they fit the pattern of you had a a Joseph, you have a a James, you have a James and a a Joseph, and you have a Jude, Um, you've got uh, multiple sisters. The Bible refers to him as having plural sisters. Jesus's name falls outside the line. Typically in the Middle East at that time, the firstborn son was named for the grandfather. The secondborn son was named for the father. Uh, And that's the pattern in Jesus's family with those kids on Joseph's side of the family, which means we think these are Joseph's kids, whether we believe Mary had kids or not, as some do and some don't. We know they thought he was out of his mind. Mark, which is the account of Peter. Mark is John Mark. Mark is Peter's scribe. The book is attributed to Mark, but it's Peter's telling of the story. Peter being an eyewitness who we know lived. We have documentary evidence from the Romans that Peter lived, was crucified. We have his body, we think, the the Vatican claims to. But we know this guy was real, and this is his account. And he says that Jesus' family did what we would call an intervention. They showed up and said he's out of his mind. Don't listen to him. Jesus' best friend was a guy named John. We know John existed. We know John wrote the book of John because we have other eyewitnesses. A guy named Ignatius, a guy named Polycarp, a guy named Irenaeus. Irenaeus studied under Polycarp. Polycarp and Ignatius were both martyred in the church. Uh, They were both bishops within the church. 
they lived in the area of Turkey. Uh, Polycarp was placed on a funeral pyre and burned at the stake. Ignatius was hauled into the Circus Maximus in Rome, disemboweled and fed alive to wild beasts. These people lived, and they lived and were willing to die professing a belief that this guy rose again from the dead. You've got to write a heck of a lot of people out of history to write the resurrection out of history. We know from the eyewitnesses, we know from John, Jesus' best friend, that Jesus' brothers said, get out of town, we don't believe you. And he did, and he went to Jerusalem, he ultimately got killed, and they did not show up at his execution. In fact, John documents Jesus from the cross had to say to John, here's your mother, and to Mary, here's your son, as he was going to die, because his earthly brothers, first cousins, whatever you want to call them, they weren't there. They would not show up at this guy's execution. It's it's profound. This happened. This is documented. And then the early church documents that James and Jude, two of his brothers, actually became leaders in the early church. So what happened? They refused to show up at his execution. They told him to get out of town. We've got eyewitnesses writing about this. We're documented. John was a real guy who wrote the book of John. We know this from his students, Ignatius and Polycarp. We know that Paul wrote wrote his scriptures well, in part from Clement, who's mentioned in the Bible, who was tied to an anchor and thrown into the Adriatic by the Romans because he too refused to renounce the resurrection. A whole lot of people were willing to die including Jesus's brothers. Now, my sisters love me. I was texting with them last night. My sisters would not be willing to be stoned to death, burned alive, or beheaded, professing me as the risen Lord. But we know historically, factually, that Jesus's brothers were willing. One was stoned, was first thrown off the temple in Jerusalem when he refused to renounce his brother as Lord, and then stoned to death when he hit the ground and was still breathing. His other brother, Jude, was killed. His entire family was executed. We have a bloodline of Jesus from from Joseph's side of the family. The Romans systematically executed every single one of them. His sisters, his sister's children, his brothers-in-law, his brothers, their wives and children, every single one of them exterminated by the Romans. And this is all documented history, not by these apostles who are writing these books of the Bible, but by external sources from Scripture. We know these things happen. Why did the Romans exterminate the whole family? You exterminated the whole family. You killed all of his friends except one. And 2,000 years later, we're still talking about this guy. I would submit to you something profound had to have happened. In Scripture, Paul says that he, after after the resurrection, appeared to hundreds of people. Faith in Christ flourished. The Romans systematically tried to exterminate it. They murdered thousands of people who professed Christ as Lord, and his religion kept growing. Others claimed to be the Messiah. Didn't happen to them. I personally believe something very profound had to have happened. Then you have John, we know was real. John had plenty of eyewitnesses who heard him, raised up ministers in the church, bishops within the church. You have Polycarp, probably one of my favorite early Christian martyrs. He lived in, I believe, Smyrna in Turkey. They came to him. The local governor begged him to recount Christ as the risen Lord, and he refused. He said, 80 and some years am I, and he's done nothing but kindness to me. How could I betray him? And so he cooked a meal 
for the Romans who came to take him. And then he prayed over them. And then he climbed onto the fire himself and they lit it and he died. They didn't even have to tie him up. He was so trusted and respected by the local community, even the Romans, they knew he wouldn't flee. And Ignatius hauled into the Circus Maximus, a sword run across his abdomen so his intestines would spill out and set upon by wild beasts. They knew the apostles. They knew John. They refused to recant. Jesus must have surrounded himself by some incredible con men, all of whom were willing to be executed to profess him as resurrected. Or maybe he actually was. These are the awkward segments now where I have to go out and say, hey, uh, don't forget the Eden Pure Thunderstorm. (laughs) Thank you to them for being a part of the program and uh, for sponsoring the program, letting me do a show like this. The Eden Pure Thunderstorm is an air purifier. It also eliminates bad odors. You can go to EdenPureDeals.com, put in the discount code ERIC, and you can get three of them right now, limited time, three Eden Pure Thunderstorms for less than $200. They're odor eliminators. They wipe out odors. They don't just trap the dust and the pollen. They actually wipe out odors. Phenomenally great product. I travel with one. Uh, When I travel with it, I use it in a hotel room. I can even plug it up with a USB cord in a car. If the rental car stinks or the hotel room stinks, plug it into the wall. It's no bigger than my hand, really. Uh, Easy to travel with. You can get three of them, one for upstairs, downstairs, your basement, your RV, wherever you need them. EdenPureDeals.com. EdenPureDeals.com. And when you're confronted by the discount code, you just put in Eric, E-R-I-C-K, and you'll be able to see the three-pack, EdenPureDeals.com. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. This is the Good Friday program. Deviation from the deep dives into news and politics because this is a more important topic. You know what? So I did go to seminary, and I haven't finished. I probably have to restart because I've been out for a couple of years now. I uh, did the systematics, uh, the covenant theology, biblical theology, uh, the gospels, the prophets, uh, apologetics, history. I got more to go. Uh, you know, I started going to seminary in large part because I talked about faith on the program a lot, cultural issues, and started getting called by pastors asking if I would fill in on Sundays for them. And I just felt deeply uncomfortable filling in for a pastor on a Sunday when I hadn't been to seminary. So I finally decided this is God's way of telling me go to seminary. So I did. I enrolled at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. I have not finished my MDiv, and I probably won't. Uh, John Soule at the time was the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Atlanta, and he took me to lunch before I went. And he said, before you come, I want you to make me a promise. And I said, okay, what? He said, promise me, and then I'll tell you. (laughs) I said, okay, I'll promise you. What am I promising? He says, don't come to seminary. I said, well, how is this going to work? He said, just come take classes. Take any class you want to take, anything you're interested in, do that. I don't want you sounding uh, like you're a seminarian on the radio. Nobody will want to listen to that. And I have, and the knowledge has been incredible. So anyway, I, I, I got the systematics and the gospels and the prophets and all that under my belt and felt confident enough. I, I had been invited to preach. Actually, very first sermon I ever gave, who should walk in and sit right in front of me? John MacArthur. Uh, yes, very first time I ever preached, John MacArthur was in the audience. And uh, but so I finally said I felt comfortable doing this on radio and in all these little churches, 
called back independent churches, independent Baptist churches. Well, when they found out I was going to reform seminary, they're like, yeah, we think we'll be okay. So still haven't gotten into pulpits uh, much to preach on occasion. I actually find it way more. Ch- I can talk three hours a day off the top of my head without a script and find it more challenging to do a 20 to 40 minute sermon because uh, there is judgment and damnation involved if you lead people astray. And I, I appreciate the challenge, if nothing else. But in any event, in seminary, I have a brilliant professor who's on the Christmas show this year, Derek Thomas, or this past year. Love Derek Thomas. And he has said repeatedly in classes that I've been in of his that, you know, we believe by faith. Christians believe by faith, but it's not a blind faith. There's a lot of evidence for it. My next guest coming up at the top of the hour, very famous theologian. Uh, I've gotten to know him, got to know his son, Michael. Uh, Tim Keller joins me, and Tim wrote a fantastic book uh, last year for Easter, and I had him on the show actually last year, and I'm just replaying this. He is, Some of you know he has pancreatic cancer. He's okay, but I hate to bother him. And uh, Tim Keller has pointed out that that hope, that Paul used the word hope, uh, the author of Hebrews uses it as well. There, there's a hope, uh, and what it actually really means is profound certainty. The hope of the resurrection means a profound certainty. We are profoundly certain that this event happened. We have evidence for it. It's not, it is by faith, but that faith comes from evidence, from eyewitness accounts, from the people who lived very near in time to Christ who were willing to die to profess him Lord, including his brothers. His brother James rejected him in life, didn't show up at his execution, became a leader in the early church, and the leaders of Jerusalem went to him and said, hey, look, we need you to tell people. This is documented, by the way. This is documented history. They went to him and they said, hey, we need you to tell people this isn't true. People are still saying your brother is is actually God. And James said he is. Didn't just say he is. He said he's Yahweh. James told the leaders of Jerusalem his brother Jesus is actually Yahweh. That meant something big to them. It enraged them. They carried him to the roof of the temple and threw him off. And he was still proclaiming his, G- his brother Jesus was God. And he hit the ground and was still alive, and they stoned him to death, according to the eyewitnesses. His brother, who didn't believe him in life, was thrown off a roof and stoned to death for calling his brother Jesus Yahweh after Jesus had been executed, proclaiming him risen, actually. Welcome back. That's the man Carrollton. Uh, it is Eric Erickson, the Eric Erickson Show. This is the Good Friday Show. Uh, last year, I sat down with Tim Keller, the theologian who founded uh, Redeemer in New York City, a worldwide well-known evangelical pastor within my denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. He's battling pancreatic cancer. And I actually didn't want to bother him this year. I bother him every once in a while, but I didn't want to bother him this year. I know he's got a lot going on right now. Uh, But I wanted to re-air for you now my conversation with Tim Keller from last year. Joining me by phone is uh, the, can I say ever great, uh, Tim Keller? Uh, I know your works mean so much to so many people. Oh, my goodness, no. You can't do that at all. (laughs) We We should have talked about this beforehand. Though I'm very happy that I'm even, you know, even at this stage of my life, I'm still able to write. Yes. Well, you know, you're, 
I hate to write books and people tell me you, you need to write another book. I'm like, no, it's, it's a painful experience for me. And then I read your books and I, I kind of get jealous because I'm like, man, he strings words together. And as I write for a living and you're just, you're so good at it in every book that you write And this one, uh, it, for those who don't know it, hopes in time, hope in times of fear. It's it, I was from the introduction to the last page. I was captivated. Hmm. Well, you know, my wife and I um, occasionally we actually work together on a book uh, where we actually co-author it. But uh, in every case, what I do, and I did it with this one, is we read the book out loud to each other. Because you really, it, it is so much worse before you do that. Because you just can't really catch the things that, how do I say it, the inelegancies and the infelicities. <laughs> but Kathy actually has said, uh, books are hard to write. And Kathy said, this is the closest you will ever know to what it's like to have a ba- having a baby. <laughs> I can believe that. Now let, let's get into this one because you, you make a point at the beginning of the book and it's one I, I've, I've had a couple of professors in seminary mention this and they always sound frustrated when they say it. And you say to the beginning that we, we as Christians spend so much time on good Friday and looking at the cross and we kind of forget, Hey, there's, there's this event with an empty tomb on Sunday and we should spend a lot of time meditating on the actual resurrection, the, the one event in human history that actually has the power to to change you, uh, unlike, say, Caesar crossing the Rubicon or Washington crossing the Delaware. Yes. Um, yeah, there are a couple things. One is actually years ago, I, I got called on this. Some, I, I can't remember where, but I, somebody said, you know, when you present the gospel, you don't you leave the resurrection out. You talk about the cross and the resurrection is not even there. And I realized to some degree it's because if you look at a lot of the traditional gospel uh, presentations like, uh, frankly, like, I mean, Billy Graham's Steps to God, uh, the old crew crusade for, uh, for spiritual laws, by and large, the resurrection is you know either a footnote or it's not there at all. And by the way, interestingly, I'm looking right at it. Charles Hodge, and, and Eric, you would know this since you've done the seminary thing. Charles Hodge, uh, in the uh, 1800s, he wrote the, the magnum opus uh, reformed systematic theology, big Three volume thing. I'm staring at it on my bookshelf right now. Well, okay, you know that you look in there. There's like over 120 pages on the cross and four pages on the resurrection. Wow. You go go look it up, and we don't really know what it is other than it's oh, it's just a kind of like big supernatural miracle sign, and we get out we get it out once a year to say, isn't it great that Jesus rose from the dead? But we really don't know what to do with it. We really don't know what what difference it makes to the way in which we live. And that's what I was trying to tackle in the book. And yet earlier in in multiple times when I do my Good Friday show, I I make the point that a whole lot of people died on crosses. There's only one uh, that we focus on, and that is in large part not because he died on the cross, because of what happened on the third day after dying on the cross. And still yet we kind of gloss over that. And one of the things I, I love about the beginning of your book where you focus on the actual historicity of it, I had to read in T. Wright's Resurrection of the Son of God. And it is, I, I, it's a, it really, it's an impressive academic work. Uh, I, and I, I swear, I, I promise I finished it. And I, I don't know that I actually did. There's so many pages to it. And yet he lays out how there really aren't any other religious traditions 2000 years ago, anywhere on the planet that have anything like what the very earliest Christians described was happening. Right. And see that uh, he just adds all sorts of layers to it. I mean, when I was, uh, when I first became a Christian many years ago in the late sixties in college, 
I read a book by a guy named Frank Morrison called Who Moved the Stone. I mean, there were some books on evidence for the resurrection, but but uh, Tom Wright uh, just added so many layers. Uh, and one of them that you just alluded to is the fact that basically this isn't the sort of thing that anybody could have made up. Because when you make up, uh, I mean, very often, uh, like Kathy and I like science fiction. So we'll we'll watch science fiction. But so often you can tell that the person who wrote that particular episode or all that was was getting ideas from somebody before that. It's very, very seldom that things are very original. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Wright is just trying to say that uh, for somebody to be raised from the dead, for example, here's just one example. It says the only times you have in any other literature, any other myths or legends, if somebody's raised from the dead, they're either uh, just resuscitated and they look exactly like themselves, right? In other words, like Lazarus. He right. comes back from the dead. He says, oh, there he is. Or else he's a radiant kind of, uh, you know, angelic creature. But the idea that somebody be raised from the dead and so different that you wouldn't recognize him as the same person and yet so ordinary that you wouldn't think there's anything weird about him. He says, who would have made that up? And he goes on through and just talks about that until you get – and then, of course, he talks about the fact that, you know, what would make Jews, who were the last people on the face of the earth, be worshiping a human being as God? Almost immediately, they were worshiping God. I mean, the evidence is that it wasn't like it didn't. It wasn't an evolution. It wasn't like over the decades, you know, the the legends grew. They were immediately worshiping a human being as God, and they're the last people on the face of the earth to do that. What happened? Well, they tell you, and then N.T. Wright says, "Okay, and if you don't believe them, then give me give me another explanation." And he says, at one level, this doesn't sound like history because historians would say, well, we don't believe in miracles, you know. Right. At another level, it's good history because a good historian doesn't just say, well, it couldn't be. You have to look up for a historically possible alternate explanation to the birth of the Christian church amongst Jews. And he says, if you don't have one, then you ought to at least be open to the possibility. Maybe you're wrong about miracles. So it's it's pretty powerful, and I only spent one chapter on it because I do feel that the the last 30 years or so, the, uh, the scholarship has really strengthened Christians' hands in belief in the resurrection, yes. I think it it really has, and it's his book was so powerful, and, and you're, I, I have to say you do a very good job of summarizing it and also highlighting the 1 Corinthians 15 and the scholarly research we now have on that. And I, I could spend all day on that, but I actually want to jump to the larger portion of the book on the meaning of it, yeah. particularly for yeah. something relevant to us today. Uh, it, towards the end, you talk about justice, but at the beginning I was struck by something that I, I've been saying on radio, and you give better words to it, that in the civil rights era, there was a lot of hope in the civil rights era. And now in the yes. social justice era, there's almost like a secular eschatology that we can't have salvation as long as these people who disagree with us are, are still allowed in the town square to debate us. And there's there's a lot of despondency, it seems like, without any hope in the social justice movement of today when the resurrection shows there is real justice. Yeah, I was gentle at that point, uh, Eric, but I do think you do have to be a little careful as an older white guy uh, talking right. about what I see is the difference between – Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement, which wasn't perfect, of course. There isn't a perfect movement. But to compare that to Black Lives Matter, which is utterly secular, um, where the earlier movement, there was a note of forgiveness. Uh, You never saw the the people, for example, you never saw the people who were marching and who were actually doing civil disobedience. 
you didn't see them screaming profanities at the police. You, you did, you, there was a note of reconciliation and of hope, and it was, it was more Gandhian in a way. You know, Gandhi, I, I just was looking at that old movie, a great movie right. about his life, and I realized that, you know, he picked up better than, I mean, he was a Hindu, but he really picked up the nonviolence thing to say, we're not just being nonviolent. We are, we're going we're gonna to basically out-virtue you. We're going to out-love you. We're going to sit here and do the right thing, and we're going to call for justice, but we're going to be forgiving, we're going to be kind, we're going to be loving, and we're going to embarrass you in a way. And, boy, there's nothing of that. I, I, I do feel it's because the Civil Rights Movement was led by ministers and people who were over, overtly Christians, and Black Lives Matter is not. And I'm not saying that Black Lives Matter is, is not doing any good at all. I'm just saying that note's gone. And I do think it's dangerous because it, what it does is it doesn't really get, it doesn't win over the other side. And I, I actually, there's a book by, called A Stone of Hope. It's a history of the civil rights movement written by David Chappell. Uh, it's a, it's a, you know, it's an academic book, so it's not a, you know, it's not a, a page turner. But he basically says that, largely speaking, the the segregationist lar- uh, South. White people were, were somewhat won over by the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just they didn't just power in with their with their legislation. They, you know, it, it embarrassed people. I, I remember when I moved to Hopewell, Virginia, in 1975. All my blue collar people in my church were white people, and they were mainly in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, and they had been segregationists. And but most of them were actually told me they were embarrassed by the way they had pre- uh, treated black people when they were younger. And they, the more they had thought about it was this this really wasn't right and this isn't the Christian way. So I, I do feel the civil rights movement was successful in winning hearts in a way that I don't know I see any hearts being won right now. Do you? No. It I, just feels I, like I, I see hardening hearts everywhere. I, I agree with you. And, and part of my frustration, and I've, I've seen this interaction on social media involving you, is, is I routinely now <laughs> refer to what you've written about critical theory. And yet you and I agree that there needs to be some level of racial reconciliation in the church. And every time I bring up the subject, well, well you're buying into critical theory. And, and it's that people seem to have gotten so tribal even within the church on the issue when I, I think only Christianity can speak to uh, what's happening in society. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither male nor female. We're, we're all one people in Christ. And everyone seems to be lost to that message and also to the message of hope, which I, I – I don't mean to ramble there, but so full disclosure earlier today, I had to get my eyes dilated and I cannot now read on the page where it was. But at the introduction, you you mentioned that that hope, (laughs) the the Greek word, the the English word hope doesn't really capture what hope means in the Greek and the Bible of profound certainty. It is Eric Erickson here. This is Ghost Ship you're listening to, Where Were You? But it's also my Good Friday program. And if you were just listening, I was talking to Tim Keller. I was setting him up. This is a conversation we had last year, and I had to record it and break it into parts for you guys. Uh, he gave me a lot more time than, than than I had asked for. He was very generous. But one of the things he noted is that uh, in the Bible, in the New Testament, among Paul's letters and the Hebrews, it talks about hope, hope in the resurrection, and that the word hope doesn't mean a wishful thinking. It actually means, if translated better from the original Greek, a profound certainty. Yeah, uh, the uh, the elpis. The, the Greek word really means confidence. 
And that is not what the word hope means in English at all. In fact, but there's no way around it. Mm -hmm. Hope sounds very positive, so I can't not use it. In fact, I I even thought about saying, you know, confidence in times of fear. That doesn't work, does it? I mean, (laughs) you're, you know, you're, you're a communicator. That just, that doesn't have the same resonance. And yet the word hope in English means I'm not sure of it, but I'm hoping for it. Mm -hmm. And that's actually not what the Greek word means. So there's a little bit of a, it's a, it's a problem. It's, by the way, it's a little bit like the, uh, the word peace in the Bible, as you know, the word peace usually means an absence of hostility. Whereas the, if it translates shalom, which is the Hebrew word is a much richer word. It means full flourishing. And so we have a translation problem there, Uh, but hope means confidence and assurance. Yes. Well, and and this gets into the, the squabbling, I guess, within interdenominational and intradenominational aspects of racial reconciliation, that it, it seems like there's a perfect space for the gospel message and one side doesn't want to hear it and the other side is is afraid if you even bring it up that somehow you're you're talking about things that aren't appropriate in church and I just I, that frustrates me these days. Oh boy. Yeah, it's a big I mean I'll I'll stay there as long as you want Eric. I mean this is this is your uh your time. Uh I guess I would say that the um we at this point, when it says in Romans twelve, it says, "Don't be conformed to this world; be transformed by the renew of your renewing of your mind." Mm-hmm. It is really saying, um, "Be careful that you don't let the thought categories of this world uh, control your Christianity." You might think that you're being a Christian, and yet you're really letting the world, rather than the Bible, for example, uh, set the pace for you. And I think when you do have, for example, when you do have in the Bible, um, on the one hand, you've got plenty of discussion in the Bible about caring about the oppressed um, and the poor, caring about them. Uh, you also have plenty in the Bible about the fact that you're not supposed to, uh, uh, that you know, in Christ where there's no Jew or Greek, no male or female. That doesn't mean the distinctions aren't there. I mean, Paul was very, very... Uh, happily Jewish. Mm-hmm. He talks about it. He was proud to be Jewish in Romans 9. So when it says in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, he, it doesn't mean he wasn't proudly Jewish. What he actually meant was, at that point, what he was trying to say is, is the barriers, the cultural barriers have just come down. And when I become, if you're a Greek Christian and you're a Jewish Christian, then the bond between the two of you is stronger than it is uh, between you and a non-Christian Greek or a non-Christian Jew. In other words, that becomes the most important thing. So in Christ, we can have this, this uh, overcoming of racial barriers. In Christ, we need to care about the poor. And the danger is the Bible talks about these things, but because the left and the secular left has almost branded those things as this, those, are, those are our ideas, you just have a lot of conservatives who just don't want to go there right. at all. They don't want to talk about it at all. And at that point, I'm saying, are you really letting the Bible dictate or are you really letting the world's politics dictate? So, and that's where we, as you know, if you do follow my Twitter, that's where I mm-hmm. fairly often get criticized because just there are certain words you you're not allowed to use the word. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here, and I have been having a conversation with the great theologian, the Reverend Tim Keller of Redeemer New York. Now he's retired from Redeemer. Uh, he and his wife Kathy last week announced they're making all of his uh, sermons and writings available online. Just a wealth of knowledge, a wonderful human being, 
I was so thankful for him, particularly battling pancreatic cancer, to give me as much time as he did. Uh, We were talking about, uh, well, intersectionalism and racial reconciliation and the like. Uh, It ended in the last segment and wanted to finish our conversation, myself and Tim Keller. You hit on a a point, and and I I tell my audience all the time when people tell me I've changed, and I say, I, I have changed. I used to... I am very mindful of the fact now, uh, now that I have kids and my kids are growing up, how when I was a a young guy in the political movement, I really was moving my faith to try to justify politics. And and as I've gotten older, I've realized, you know, I'm kind of being defined by my politics and not my faith. Going to seminary, I think, was, was really deeply helpful for me to be able to talk about it. And there just seems to be almost a lack of balance now, uh, even within Christian culture in this country of where's the Christian versus where's the American inside the American church. And right. I'm not sure yeah. we have a lot of people who found the balance right now. No, I don't think so. Uh, I, here's another way to think about the balance. That's one right there. Another way, and this is here, I'm going to get a little theological on you, but I think uh, you might appreciate this. Um, so, for example, if if I if I critique uh, critical race theory as a system, and I I do, you know, as a system, as a as a kind of as as on the paper, actual system, I see huge problems. But then you actually have critical race theorists, and these are actual people, who are actually never completely consistent. By the way, mm-hmm. they're not the same thing as the system. Um, and I remember years ago, I, I wrote a paper for Dr. Roger Nicole. I don't know if you even know who he was, uh, uh, Eric. He did actually teach at Orlando RTS, Reform Seminary, in his, in his uh, old age. But he was my professor at Gordon-Conwell. I wrote a paper for him in which I, ca- I, would, I wrote a paper, and I went in to talk to him about it because he gave me some bad marks on it. And I said, well, the Calvinist and the Arminian, as you, most of your listeners know, Calvinism mm-hmm. believes in predestination. Arminians believe in free will, no predestination. And I was saying the Calvinist would say this, and the Arminian would have to say this, and then the Calvinist would have to say this. He said, he said, you, he says, you're totally wrong. He says, you might say Calvinism says this, Arminianism says this, but the Calvinist can say whatever he wants. He's just a person. <laughs> and he says almost every one of us is actually ha- – he said – I remember he said it in his French accent – happily inconsistent. <laughs> and he says – he says so for example, he says Arminianism – he was a Calvinist. He says Arminianism or Catholicism. He was a Protestant. As a system, I think that they are severely wrong. But he says Catholics and Arminians are just people. And they very often have a mixture of insight. So I can never, he says, I've learned from Arminians, even if I think they're inconsistent with their own system. And so the danger here is if you ever listen to somebody who might be a critical race theorist, could I ever learn from them? I think the answer is, yeah, I might learn from them. Why? Because they're people. And people are very often, I would say, as Christians, Eric, you and I are nowhere near as good as our true beliefs should make us. Right. But I would actually say, and this is, this is actually a doctrine in, in Reformed theology, it's called the doctrine of common grace, that non-Christians are never quite as bad as their wrong beliefs should make them because they are made in the image of God, and they, they actually, uh, Romans 2 says they do have consciences that do know something about God's moral law, uh, even if they hold it down somewhat, uh, it says in Romans 1. And therefore, to ever say, on the one hand, I feel like the liberal Christian tends to not be willing to critique critical race theory severely enough as a system. 
But on the other hand, the conservatives don't want to ever listen to anybody at all who has anything to do with it. Almost, they're, they're making the mistake that I made that Dr. Nicole called me on. And that is to say, to say you can't learn from a person is really wrong, even if you critique the system. I think that's a that's well said. Uh, before I let you go, I want to move this back to the book. Uh, you know, I, I've I've mentioned to you, my wife has cancer. I know you're battling cancer. First of all, I, I'll get uh, yelled at in lots of hate mail if I if I don't ask you on the radio how you're doing. Well, I've got pancreatic cancer, which is um, uh, the stats are really bad for that. Um, and and yet, here's the good news. Uh, 80% of pancreatic cancer uh, victims, I guess you could say, 80% die within a year to a year and a half of diagnosis. Now, I've already been diagnosed. I was diagnosed 10 months ago, but I, I've actually uh, had three scans. You know something about this, mm-hmm. Eric, every three months. And every scan has shown the uh, the chemotherapy has actually shrunk the uh, the cancer even more. And that is unusual. I've been told by everybody, maybe once, maybe twice, but not three times. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we expect it to grow back, and we expect my life to probably be shorter than you know I was expecting. Kathy and I both say at the ages, when we got to 70, we said, I thought we'd feel older <laughs> when we got to 70. I don't feel that old. So to have cancer now isn't, is, you know, it's, it's terrible. It's awful. Right. And yet, uh, it doesn't look like, here's the good news. I th- I really did think I might be dying within months, but, uh, no, it doesn't look like it. That's all. I've been just saying the first year has been unusually good. Uh, and I'm just, we're just praying that, uh, and I feel pretty good. Good. We're just praying that we keep up, but as you know, that could, that could turn anytime. Right. So, well, and, and that gets me then back to your book, hope in times of fear, uh, and the meaning of, of Easter and the resurrection and the life everlasting. I, I have so many people who are atheists who I encounter in social media, and they say, how can you believe in a God who would let your wife go through something like that? And and I always try to, as, as graciously as I can, say, well, you know, he went through something really bad himself. Right. He loved us so much, and he conquered it. So I know that she, my wife is a believer she'll have eternal life. And I just, I, I sometimes think there's, we get lost as Christians sometimes, I guess, in, in quibbling with each other over which syllables within orthodoxy each of us are emphasizing. And yeah. we forget yeah. there's such a brilliant, brilliant, hopeful message that we have to share with the world. Yeah. Um, and, and another way to, that's a, that was a great answer to the, the people who are asking you that question. I think that's the first answer, the best one which is to say, even though we don't understand the reason why my wife or why I have, I'm suffering in this way, we do know, uh, unlike any other religion, you see, if you don't believe in God, then you, what, you know what? Your suffering is meaningless. It's just part of strong eat the weak, survival of the fittest, net, nature's red in tooth and claw. It's meaningless. If there is a God, then you have these other religions, but we have the only religion in which God has actually come into the world uh, in Jesus Christ and suffered with us, showing that he cares about us and showing that he's actually going to do something about it in the end. Now we don't always know exactly why this or that is happening. I'll just give you a real quick example is when I went down to to Washington DC for cancer treatment, uh, we stayed in the home of uh, somebody's home that was not there at the time. Uh, We left some of my books there. Uh, The person uh, picked up the books when they got back the owners 
And these were people who actually weren't that interested in Christianity but read the books and got very interested and talked to some of their um, their believing uh, uh, siblings about it. And then the siblings called Kathy and said, I can't believe that I'm being asked to talk about this. I, I'm sitting there saying, you know what? When people say, why did Tim get cancer? And the answer is, I'll bet you there's at least 200 million reasons, good reasons, that we have no idea about. Why couldn't there? Maybe there's 300 million, because everything's connected to everything else. Mm -hmm. uh, the only thing I know is, even though I don't know why I've got cancer, I know I don't know the reason why, but I do know what the reason isn't. It isn't that he doesn't love me, because he came and he died for me, and then rose again to give me an absolute confidence that if I and when I die, I'll be with him. Wow, I I, I think that's a, a perfect stopping point. I, to your point, though, I, I will just share the story with you. I've, I've mentioned this on air before that my wife was given six months to live in 2006 and thankfully they misdiagnosed her, but it was the 2006 misdiagnosis that led the Mayo Clinic to call her 10 years later and say, we think you're going to develop lung cancer or you may have. And and it was the same day I was rushed into the hospital expecting to die. My lungs had filled up with, with uh, blood clots. So my wife is being told she has cancer on the same day. They're telling me I've got probably 24 hours to live. Uh, thankfully we both survived, but I, I told the story on radio one time and I had a guy come up to me at an event and he said, I just want you to know, uh, I was diagnosed with cancer. I found out my girlfriend and my best friend were having an affair. She was pregnant. And as I was telling her that I had cancer, she interrupted to tell me she was moving in my, my boyfriend and I was headed off to commit suicide and heard you tell your story on radio and thought, you know what? My life really isn't that bad. And I feel like, you know, if, if, there, there's one there turn you. of strange events in my life to be able to share the story. I might have saved somebody's life just in sharing the story. No, no, that's right. Exactly. And I mean, and you know, that's not the reason. I mean, that's right. not a sufficient reason, but just like, just like the fact that this woman said that, you know, might be coming to faith because I left some books there. But what I'm trying to say is cumulatively, there could be hundreds right. of millions of reasons. And that's the reason why, how silly it is for us to doubt, mm -hmm. especially when the main thing is the cross and the resurrection. That's what, convinces me that he's got good reasons for what he's doing. I agree with that. I, I, I could spend all day, but your time is, is precious and I've only got so much airtime on radio. So I appreciate <laughs> you so much uh, taking the time to talk to me. And I really did just appreciate the book so much. Thank you. And time went by really fast. So maybe we'll do this again. I hope. Thank you again, Tim Keller for your time and please keep him, his wife, Kathy and his family in your prayers as he battles pancreatic cancer. Now, I got to tell you guys about Patriot Mobile, and again, thank you to all the sponsors today uh, for making it possible for me to do this, and for all of the stations, including my new stations, some of whom are like, what is this today? Never heard of this today. You're really going to do this today? Thank you all for putting up with this today. Uh, I, it, this is a meaningful day, but Patriot Mobile, uh, they're a cell phone company, and I know that sounds a little kind of off the wall. What, 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 well, what they take a portion of their profits and they give it to causes you care about. They're actually Christian conservatives, and they take their profits and fund the conservative movement, the pro-life movement, the Second Amendment movement. Uh, they fund conservatives around the country, and all you have to do is take your cell phone service to them, and you get guaranteed great service. They use the same cell towers everybody else uses. So you go to patriotmobile.com slash Eric today, or you call them at 972-PATRIOT. Tell them I sent you. You get free activation. You get guaranteed great service. And you get a portion of their profits sent to the causes you care about, and you get great discounts. If you're a veteran, a first responder, a teacher, an NRA member, you got a lot of lines for a lot of kids. 
Patriot Mobile is a company you should consider doing business with. PatriotMobile.com slash Eric or 972-PATRIOT. Welcome back. It's Eric Erickson here. It is Good Friday. It is the Good Friday show, the anniversary of the most important weekend in human history. Before I go any further, I want to, and I would be remiss if I didn't, play this for you from Alistair Begg. Hey, think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense, I can't, I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you were, you were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You'd never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and yet, and yet you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, like, because I don't know. Well, you know, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor, Angel. So we just a few questions for you. First of all, are you are you are you are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> the guy said, "I never heard of it in my life." And and what about? Uh, let's just go to the doctrine of scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, "On on what basis are you here?" And he said, "The man on the middle cross said, I can come.'" <laughs> now. Now, that's the, that is the only answer. That is the only answer. And if I don't preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust myself, trust my experience, which is part of my fallenness as a man. If I take my eyes off the cross, I can then give only lip service to its efficacy while at the same time living as if my salvation depends upon me. And as soon as you go there, it will lead you either to abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance. That's Alistair Begg. Uh, God bless him. The, the thief on the cross story, it's just, it's become famous. It circulates every year. It was from a uh, sermon November 20th, 2019. Uh, the power and message of the cross. The thief on the cross, he didn't know the doctrine of justification. He didn't know the doctrine of Scripture. He never had systematic theology. Just Jesus said, come, because he accepted him as his Lord. You know, when I got into radio, I didn't think I would actually make good friends after radio. I was up the other night playing Xbox with a listener who's become a friend, Joseph. Uh, he just reached out one day and said, hey, I know you have an Xbox. Do you want to play Halo? I said, sure. Took a while for me to actually do it. Now we go out every once in a while. We grab a beer. And, and I've just I've developed some great friendships with listeners of this program over the years. And I was really concerned about it. And my next guest is one of those listeners who became a friend who just reached out one day. He's a pastor in Atlanta. And he said, I'd like to meet you. And so I was like, all right, sure. And I showed up and he took an immediate care for my soul and has ever since and has dragged me into an accountability group, a, a cohort, he calls it, but it's just four of us. We get together once a month and uh, just check up on each other, make sure each is doing well. 
read some books together uh, on theology and faith, and otherwise just have some time with other men. I live a very isolated existence, and I'm more and more mindful of that, particularly after my near-death experience a few years ago, just how isolated uh, I have become, and this business is very isolating. Rush one time told me the thing he most missed in life was being able to go to a grocery store. And that's hard to fathom for you, and and it's less hard to fathom for me now. Uh, My kids won't go to the mall with me anymore in Atlanta because I got chased through the mall by a woman one time who was a fan. She wanted a picture. She she came across the parking lot and saw me screaming. My kids, we'd had death threats and stuff, and it had security at the house, and they thought we were gone for sure. They thought we were dead, and it scared my youngest so bad. Uh, he hadn't been to Linux Mall in Atlanta in years. Of course, nowadays, such a crime-ridden place you don't want to go, but back then it, it wasn't. Um, he won't do it. Um, it it's just it's, it's a weird world. I get why Rush wanted to go to the grocery store and couldn't. Thankfully, I still can and can still make friends even doing this here radio program. We'll be back with my buddy Jason Dees from Christ's Covenant. Uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, a new church plant that has absolutely exploded. Welcome back. I am joined by a guy who's become a friend of mine. He's the pastor at Christ Covenant in Atlanta, Georgia. Actually was kind enough to take time out of his spring break to be able to join me here on the radio. Jason Dees, welcome to the Eric Erickson Show. Grateful to be here, Eric. Grateful for your show and for your love for our Lord and to be talking about these important things on such a special day. So, you know, we had this this tragedy in Nashville a couple of weeks ago, right before Holy Week. Um, I have a number of friends who are friends with the pastor there who lost his child. I know other people who are in that church. Uh, my buddy Brent Leatherwood, the head of the ERLC, his kids mm-hmm. are in that school. And it just I, it struck me as that news was happening, that tragic day that, this is coming just before Christians gather to talk about the resurrection. And I, I, in my conversation with Tim Keller, he talks about how people think about hope as some sort of nebulous, I wish sort of thing. But actually, in Hebrews and when Paul writes it, the, the better translation is the profound certainty, the hope of the resurrection, the profound right. certainty of the resurrection. It just seems like there's a message there in all of this depressing news and sadness that actually there is some joy there. I was amazed at the response of Chad and the church. You know, I know I'm, I'm, I, I know Chad, I'm, I'm closer with his younger sister. And, um, you know, I was able to text with her a little bit just about the service. She, you know, said he did an amazing job. He preached his daughter's funeral, of course, last Saturday. Um, I was able to watch some video clips of just how they began the service on Sunday at the church, of course, that hosts the school. And, you know, I loved what one of the pastors said, the world has changed, but Christ still reigns. And it is the resurrection that nails that down. I mean, Christianity is one of these interesting faith systems where the center of our faith is the greatest tragedy that's ever happened. And so Christians are actually incredibly able to deal with tragedy because, tragedy is at the core of what we believe. Um, you know, it's interesting when, when Jesus marched into, uh, Jerusalem or we rode into Jerusalem on the donkey on Palm Sunday, everyone shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. 
And Hosanna means deliver us, deliver us, deliver us. And what they thought that delivery was going to be was that Jesus was going to deliver them from something external, the Romans, the oppression that the people were under. But obviously what happened is he died. He died at the hands of the Romans. But what he was doing in his death was delivering them from their greatest problem, from all of our greatest problems, which is not something external, but something internal. It's it's our sin. It's our rebellion against God. And Jesus died the death that we should die in order that we can experience the power of the resurrection and live and live to God and once again be united to God. So obviously this is something that we as Christians celebrate, think about all the time. I mean, I, the gospels are the very center of our lives, but it's something that we in particular think about this week. And uh, it's a special time to be talking about these things. It, it continues to be a remarkable thing for me that even secular historians, whether you look at the historians at Cambridge or Harvard, uh, even in, in Asia now, increasingly in history's departments of international studies, when you ask them about the most important events in human history, you have uh, Alexander conquering the world, you have the rise of the Roman Empire, and in the top five inevitably is the execution of this carpenter's son in Jerusalem. Yeah. And it, even for people who don't acknowledge him as Lord, it, it just, just remarkable reverberations around the world for 2000 years. Yeah. I mean, the, the major work, the resurrection of Jesus Christ into your right. Um, Such a good he gives book. All of these. Com- yeah. I mean, it's incredible, really. It's a, it's a slog, but if you can work your way through it, he gives all of these evidences um, of, I mean, it's really, if you read this book, it's, it's hard to deny the resurrection. Um, but one of the most compelling points is exactly what you're just saying. Like without some major event, how did this happen? How, how did, I mean, I was just in Jerusalem and this event that happened 2000 years ago of this, uh, man from Nazareth that was crucified and then was reportedly raised. This event still looms so large over the city of Jerusalem. And as you just said, it looms large over the entire world. How did that happen? Something must have happened. And obviously, I mean, to me, the most plausible conclusion, you know, just as a just looking at it as a historian, is that these claims of Christianity are true. Obviously, there's there's other evidences that Christians have the the sense of relationship with God that you can have. But it's in. It's an incredibly, um, you know, as you as you just said, like if you just look at world history, something happened in Jerusalem on Sunday morning in AD 33, and obviously we were still remember that today. And 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 if what happened is true, that death has been conquered, that we have hope over death, we have hope over our greatest enemy. Well, that is the greatest thing that we could ever think about, talk about. And, and really give our lives to. Now, you have, to a degree, given your life to the faith. You, you're a pastor. You went to Atlanta, Georgia, inside the perimeter, uh, where most of the churches have, d- to some degree, I would say, gone possibly wobbly on their faith, liberal theology, and the like. There aren't a lot of conservative churches that believe the inerrant word of the Bible are in the perimeter, and yet here you are establishing what is a, a growing, thriving church. I'm trying to push my kid to go there when she goes to tech. Yeah, I think, you know, we live in a secular age, and um, and that is certainly potent in Atlanta. And 
secularism or you could say secular humanism is is built on the assumption really i mean no secular humanist would admit this but but ultimately and and you are in the the world of politics which is the height of heights in secular humanism so you see this instinct and ethic all the time but secular humanism is built on the ethic really of exploiting power to get more power of taking whatever power and influence you have to get more and more of it and so it creates this divisive competitive unmerciful cancel cancel culture world that we experience all the time what christianity is is here's jesus who is god philippians 2 he's in the very form of god the son of god the part of the triune god i know we are reading delighting in the trinity together and yet he doesn't take his authority he doesn't take that divinity and exploit it for his own benefit but rather he makes himself a servant he gives his life and and rather than you know pursuing more exclusivity he already had all exclusivity he's god he invites us in he 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 creates a, a more inclusive offer to invite sinners like you and me and all of your listeners into a profound loving relationship with the eternal god and so the, the instincts of christianity are so opposite of the instincts of secular humanism and 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 i think what we're seeing at Christ's covenant is the message of the gospel the hope of the gospel the hope of what jesus has done the very thing that we're talking about on this good friday that he rather than exploiting his authority for his own benefit he laid down his life for the benefit of others i think that message is so needed and compelling and young men and women in atlanta i mean most of our church is in their 20s uh and so we have you know more than you know a thousand fifteen hundred young adults and we have older adults too coming um but we have a lot of young adults coming because they they want a different message and they've come to believe in the truth of scripture and the truth of the gospel all right last question for you before i let you go back to your vacation uh, to you personally uh Jason, sitting there enjoying the view on vacation with your family, grew up. Your your dad, your 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 family, and and your 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 wife's family, uh, your ties to each other, and and what may come, what may not come. To you personally, at that level, what what does the resurrection mean? Not to you, the pastor, but to you, the human being. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Erica. <laughs> There is this sense of gravity of life. Uh, you know, I'm not an old man, but um, I'm an older man than I once was. And, you know, it, it, even just being here, um, you know, it's interesting being here at the beach. I had this thought last night. I've been coming down to the Gulf Coast my entire life. And, you know, here I am with my you know, six-year-old, eight-year-old, 11-year-old child thinking about to the vacations when I was six, 11 and, you know, eight and, and here I am their dad. And, and it's not going to be too much longer to where I'm in the seat of my dad, who's, you know, just turned 69 years old. Uh, and just, just how quick life can go. I mean, I, I think just the, the breadth of the, the brevity rather of, of this 
life. And, and, and I think if, if all the, this life was, was this life, um, I, it would, it would overwhelm me. It would depress me. It would, uh, you know, I couldn't, uh, you know, I don't know that I would find any sense in it. Um, I think the sorrow of it would, would be overwhelming. And, and really the hope of the resurrection is that this life is not just this life, that, that we were made there. There's something in our souls, Eric, and, and I know, you know, it. I know your listeners know it, that, that we were meant to know God. I mean, the, the, the only thing big enough for your soul is God. That's why nothing else really satisfies. Nothing else leaves us satisfied. You know, I talked on Sunday about just this theme of water in the scripture. We, we were looking at the sayings of Jesus on the cross and he says, I thirst. And this theme of thirsting and being satisfied. And the, and the only thing that can really satisfy your soul is a relationship with God. And it is the cross and it is the resurrection that invites us into that. And it's not, you know, a, a temporary relationship. It's an eternal relationship. We are invited to know God and to enjoy God and to dwell with God forever. So even in a moment last night at the grocery store with my kids, seeing them run around and remembering being at the grocery store with my parents and realizing, gosh, like half my life is over. Um, I am reminded of the resurrection in that little moment, grocery store moment. I have hope because of the resurrection. So it, it's really every moment of my life. You know, I did a funeral on Saturday, of course. What, what is more calming, more comforting at a funeral than the resurrection of our Lord Jesus? You know, when you just consider the shooting that we talked about last week, uh, what is more comforting than the resurrection? And so it's in big things and it's in little things. Um, you know, it's a part of my everyday life. Uh, without the resurrection, as Paul says, we're most to be pitied. And and that's not just, <laughs> to me, that's not just people that gave themselves for the sake of the gospel, like Paul, of course, did. But it's really all humanity. I mean, what is the point of this? Um, we know that our souls are bigger than just a nice life with a nice 401k in 80 years. Uh, we know that our souls are bigger than that, and they are. They're, they're made for something bigger. They're made to know God, and the resurrection is the invitation through which we can know him. So it, it, I'm so grateful to be on the show. I'm so glad you're talking about these things. There's nothing more than important that we could be talking about. Well, listen, I, I appreciate it a ton. Uh, thank you for taking time out to, to spend a few minutes with me here. And I know you'll be preaching on Sunday, so all the best to you then and to your family. Thanks so much, brother. Thank you. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here across the nation. Uh, you know, there's no reason. I gave the phone screener the day off. He and I are actually going to do the Masters. When I'm done with you guys uh, and have these conversations, I'm going to hit the road and go to Augusta to the Masters where it is just going to be rain, rain, rain. And I intend to have beer and eat pimento cheese tomorrow uh, at Augusta National. Whether they play golf or not, I got souvenirs to buy for myself and friends and I am absolutely, I got to eat a pimento cheese. I got to have a beer and it should be great. Uh, thank you guys for hanging out with me today. And thank you. I've seen some of the emails come in already. I appreciate it. Uh, and again, to, to Ken uh, Charles at WSB, who is new to me doing this, I just appreciate the opportunity to have this microphone to be able to do it. Uh, now, not just WSB, but Ken really was very, very helpful. Uh, instrumental in helping me get into national syndication with Compass Media, and also thanks to them as well. Uh, <laughs> they didn't really know what they were getting into with me. Let, nobody ever really gets this show until they listen to it, and even then some of them don't. It's 
I, I try to do news and analysis. I try to do commentary. I try to just tell you what I think about stuff. Be a little entertaining along the way. Keep you company in your car, but not just the red meat stuff. Y'all know I used to do that. But I just, as I took my faith more and more seriously, I realized uh, I, I had a very shallow faith in very deep politics, and I need, it needed to be the reverse. If anything, I, I needed a deeper faith, even if my politics were more shallow, and I don't think they are. And in fact, I don't think I've really changed much in the last 10 years. I can't think of very many things on which I've really fundamentally changed, but I take my faith so much seriously that I did, there is a heaven and there is a hell, and I am commanded to love my neighbor as myself, even if that person's politics, worldview, sexuality, gender identity disagrees with mine, I'm to love my neighbor. And I don't know that we do that enough, and that's another reason to do this. This, this man, God, Jesus Christ, was nailed to a cross beaten to within an inch of his life, nailed to a cross, died. And he said, Father, forgive them. And he told his followers to love their neighbors and to not become cold-hearted to other people, even those outside the faith. Don't become cold-hearted to them. Don't become so cynical. Uh, Don't look at the lawlessness around you and and, and decide you hate the world. The world's going to hate you, but you got to love. Now, that love is different from the love of the world. It's not a, an affirming love of, of people and their sins, but of people despite their sins. And I, I, I got I to gotta do that. And I get so much hate from people who I'm not sufficiently loyal to Donald Trump. I, I, I'm, I'm a hater of Donald Trump, which I'm not. I don't like him, but I don't hate him. Um, and that if only you would see the world my way, and I'm trying to let my faith navigate me through the world, which makes where I land for the world completely unpredictable. But if you know my heart, perhaps you know a little more of where I stand. When we come back, uh, one more great interview. Father Stephen Gadbury is from Arkansas. An amazing story. Grew up a farm family. Lost his father and his sister when he was young. Helped his mom on the farm. Joined the Air Force. Went to Iraq. Came back. Became a Catholic priest. Studied at the Vatican, studied Joseph Ratzinger, the future Pope Benedict, and St. Augustine, and now is a priest in Little Rock, Arkansas, and a phenomenally decent human being. Welcome back. It's Eric Erickson here across the nation. I am joined by, so backstory here, when I nearly died a few years ago from all the blood clots in my lungs, I made a horrible mistake and got into CrossFit and friends of mine started recommending people I should follow. And one day someone's like, you should follow this guy from Arkansas. He's into CrossFit, but he's also a Catholic priest. And I did. And I've been trying to get him with me. And finally, we were able to connect last week uh, to record this is Father Stephen Gadbury from Arkansas, which I got to start here, Father Stephen, with I'm from Louisiana and I didn't know that there were Catholics further north into Arkansas, and, and yet here you are. <laughs> yes, sir. We're, we're few and far between in the Bible Belt. There's a lot down in the Gulf, and there's a lot up north, but not many here in the south, but we do exist. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> you were in the Air Force. Uh, you, mm-hmm. you went to seminary. You're you're now a priest. Um, I also know your, your, the backstory in, in your family with, with the death of your father and your sister, and so I'm, I'm glad to be able to actually have on Resurrection Weekend uh, this opportunity to talk to you and, and your faith. And 
Uh, can you just kind of explain, if you will, your faith journey? Yeah, wow. So that's a, a great question. And, and just before anything else, thanks for this opportunity. It's a joy to to just uh, share my little story with the world. And, and hopefully that inspires other people to live live their stories, you know, the life that the Lord's given them. Um, so I'm, I'm born and raised in the in the Christian faith. I've been a Catholic my whole life. I'm from a German farming um, Catholic family in the Arcan- from the Arkansas Delta. Um, and it's just always been sort of a non-negotiable. I, I um, in some ways have taken it for granted, but it's never been um, something that I've disrespected. It's just been a non-negotiable, uh, just something that's become so part of my uh, such an integral part of my life. Um, and as, and as I've got, gotten older, that, that, that faith life has, has, has gone deep. It's gone deep. So often in life we're, we're spread so thin. Um, and then we're trying to find answers and it's my faith life that prevents me from spreading too thin. And that allows me to go deep the world today. Uh, we're, we're, we're so thin, but what we truly long for is depth. And so my faith life is what, prompts me and prods me to go deeper and not be satisfied with the thin things of life. Well, that's a, that I've never actually heard someone put it that way. And and it's so fascinating because I do, I, I follow you on Instagram. You're involved in CrossFit. You hunt. Um, I would describe you as a good old boy from Arkansas. And yet you, you are deeply plugged into the faith community there, the, the, the faith community, the Hispanic community in Arkansas. And I mean, I, I, I saw your Instagram story the other day of, of having to serve as a plumber in, in a school as well. And just it, totally plugged in. How do you, I mean, it, it, your activities on Instagram, I, I guess it, it kind of drew me in based on a recommendation. And how do you view yourself ministerially to the community around which you live? Wow, you've got some great questions. Two back-to-back great questions. So, <laughs> God is God has called me to preach the gospel, and in a you know, the, Jesus has 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 called me and commissioned me to carry on the very ministry that He started. You know, Jesus is God who entered into the chaos and craziness of His own creation to be a part of it and to lift it up. And so, Jesus walks the earth. True God and true man walks the earth. He's with His people, telling them, "Hey." Get your life together, change, because there's so much more that, you know, there's there's so much depth to this life that you're living, but you're staying thin, you're staying superficial, shallow, go deep. That requires conversion. I say that with Jesus because, like, I try to do my best to do what he did, and he was just among his people. So, for example, social media, whether it's Instagram or um, parish ministry, ministry here in the church or the school that we have. I try to preach the gospel by being with the people. And so you mentioned, you know, the, the sewage got backed up. I spent two and a half hours a few weeks ago unclogging sewers. And somebody said, oh, Father, you don't need to do that. And I said, well, a father at his house would do it. And if and if I am your father, then I've got to be with you in all the real things of life. So in ministry, one of the ways that I connect with people is not by standing over them and preaching down to them, but by standing with them and speaking with them and that 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 requires me to be with them in their daily life in their lived realities i can't i can't teach them about god who is true and real uh if i live in a fantasy world i have to be in a real world that requires me to get dirty and sometimes even do the sewage at the church so i know that you studied joseph ratzinger and his works before he became pope benedict and as i was mentioned to you before we started this conversation on on air that 
uh, a seminary professor of mine made us read him on this idea that the hypostatic union, God was, he was, Christ was fully God, but also fully man. And it, to say that you're, you're ministering to people as, as he walked the earth and was ever present. And I just, if you wouldn't mind commenting somewhat on that, that I, we, we so often focus on the divinity of Christ, but he was also fully a human being, a, a, a actual man who had the concerns of the world. Yeah, another you're three for three on good questions, Eric. <laughs> um, just you know, God in His full divinity becomes 100% concrete reality in space and time. You know, nothing is more real than truth itself. Um, but for us, we're bound in space and time, and so God enters in to the confines of space and time, maintaining that divinity. And one of the things that Joseph Ratzinger, who eventually became Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, the one that just passed away right after Christmas. One of the things that he really taught me um, in regards to coming to embrace and just fully uh, just adore and just worship just the, the divinity of God is to embrace the beauty of life. Because beauty reveals a concrete truth that's much greater than itself. And so whenever I see or hear or feel or taste or, you know, look, you know anything, something beautiful, that leads me to God. It's not God, but it leads me to God. And so a way of thinking about that is whenever I encounter things that make me stop and say, wow, or hum, or that's amazing, or that's impressive, or I would love more of that, or I just want to relish this moment. Those are windows, you could say, of to, to, to heaven. Those are portals to divinity. And those are those are areas where we can encounter the the footsteps of God in our daily life. And if we follow those footsteps and we eventually come to God. So to bring it back to your question, I would say what I learned was just the power of beautiful things. Those things that grab your heart and your soul and your mind, allow them to embrace you and lift you out of the muck of life so that you can go to, to greater, greater, higher things. I, I'm glad you put it that way. One of the things I, I tell people when I start this show on Good Friday to explain why a conservative political talk show host would stop and pause and reflect is even among secular historians, atheists, they, they will frequently list uh, Good Friday weekend as one of the most important events in human history, whether you believe in the resurrection or not, as you and I do, that something happened to this man in in Jerusalem 2000 years ago that really revolutionized did something in the world and and when you talk about beauty the 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 beauty of of this god coming to earth as a child being born born of a virgin suffering under pontius pilate crucified died and then the power and majesty of he comes back and is going to come back again and what mm-hmm. does that mean to you not even as as a priest but just as a as a believer how do you express the resurrection great question yeah this is the most holy week for christians around the world holy week it begins with palm sunday and culminates with the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead now in the middle of all that is the last supper that he has you know when he famously washes his feet and then after that he goes to the garden and he's betrayed by one of his very best friends judas betrayed him with a kiss such an intimate act that they'd done countless times. And that was the, eventually the one that, that Judas used to betray him. And the following day, he was crucified and he died. Now, what I take from that is that um, 
it's a reminder that God brings order to the chaos. So often when we try to talk about God, we try to start with the, the common denominators that are good. But good in everyone's life is different. And so it's crazy, but I'd like to start with the common denominator of suffering and chaos, which is very often what people use to say that God is fake. Um, I actually use that to say, no, God is real. <laughs> because if we as human beings, you know, as ignorant as we are, even the brightest human being is like there's still so much more we can learn, you know. So what it reveals to me whenever I'm aware of of an, of chaos and I'm just utterly aware of it, like I know that there has to be something greater. There has to be some order that can be brought to this. And so it's always um, leads me and reminds me that there has to be there has to be more to the story. And so that's, you know, the, the death of our Lord. It reminds me that there's more to the story. We're on this side of the resurrection, so we know that he dies and he, he rose from the dead. Now, unfortunately for a lot of us, a lot of the listeners right now, they're living in a Good Friday. Not just literally today, Good Friday, but their every day of their life is a literal Good Friday. People with terminal illnesses, you know, uh, with ongoing chronic pains and ailments and mental and emotional problems, these sufferings. There's more to the story. And so a little image, and I'll wrap it up with this, is when we're reading a good book, we get to the end of a chapter – you know, there's always a plot twist. We don't throw the book out the window and say, that's stupid. I didn't know it was going to change. We keep reading. Or if we're watching a good movie and we're sucked in and then something happens with the main character, we don't say, oh, golly, I'm turning this, this movie off. We keep watching it. But in life, whenever there's a plot twist or a change, we shut the book. We turn it off. We give up. It's, it's against everything that our heart says to do. So that's a long answer to say, the cross reminds me that the chaos and the suffering of my life is an invitation to dig deeper. Father Stephen Cadbury, I appreciate you so much for spending some time with me. Y'all, I had to let Stephen go from there, but I, I have been trying to talk to him about these issues for so long and was just delighted he could spend some time with me. He's at the Diocese of Arkansas. And you can also follow him on Instagram, where he's not just a, a priest, but as I mentioned, he's a big hunter, and he's a, into CrossFit, and just a all-around very funny person to follow on Instagram. Deeply humble person, and I've just gotten to, to know him on Instagram. I was glad to talk to him. Uh, Father Stephen J. Gadbury on Instagram. We'll be back. My thanks to Advantage Gold for still willing to be a part of the program and uh, this Good Friday show. You can call them at 800-450-2566 if you would like their investment advice on how to use precious metals. Gold and silver is part of your retirement, uh, as part of your regular investing strategies. Your IRA, your 401k, your investments, however you want to do it, they can help you. 800 450 that's 800-450-2566. Reach out to them. Get their free gold IRA investment kit. Uh, they've got a great team. They're not very gimmicky. They're not gimmicky at all. In fact, they give you just straight advice, and their whole gimmick is that if they just play it straight, give you straight, sound advice, you'll do business with them instead of some of the other companies out there that, well, may not actually be giving you the advice that you probably should be using. Advantage Gold. Call them at 800 450 2566. That's 800 450 2566. Let them know I send you. Do business with good people. Advantage Gold. 
It is Eric Erickson here across the nation. Thank you guys for putting up with me. To all of my affiliates, many of you have never run the Good Friday program before because I'm new to your stations. Thank you for allowing it to Ken Charles and WSB. Thank you for allowing me for 12 years to do this show. I I really did, y'all, commit when I did got into radio, fell into it by accident, that I would do this every year, the good Lord willing, and renewed my commitment to do it. In 2016, I was given 24 hours to live, and on the same day, my wife was diagnosed with an incurable form of cancer. I said, God, as long as I can, I'll do this, and I'm sorry if some of you were put off by it. Uh, Thank you to Jim Ayers. I could not put this program on, but for him, he puts it to the satellite. Couldn't do it without him. Uh, Those of you who who I've I've turned off, I hope not, Um, maybe you're curious, really believe He's out there, and he will return. We celebrate his resurrection. Happy Easter, everyone. Cry out to him if you don't believe. His brother Jude did not believe, rejected him in life, and after death penned a book of the Bible. and a beautiful doxology, he and his entire family were slaughtered by the Romans because he proclaimed not just his brother was the Lord, but the Yahweh who led the people out of Egypt. This is the doxology from the book of Jude set to music. 